All right, all right, everybody, come on, get your seats. Let's, uh, let's get back to our places, and, and we'll get into the Word of God here in just a second. Before we do that, though, uh, I did want to just mention one other thing. We, you know, if you've been coming regularly through the spring, you've recognized we've had a lot going on, have we not? I mean, I don't know. I've, I'm fairly new to this area. May is a busy month, man. I mean, it, I think it eclipses December. I mean, it, it just, there's a lot going on, so... I'm kind of glad it's June, you know, um, for a lot of reasons. But tomorrow is a big day because all of us that have kids in middle school and high school going off to camp tomorrow. And, and it's, a, it's a big deal. It's a big production and it's a big deal. And so um, if you would please be praying Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So they'll, they'll leave tomorrow morning. They'll come back Friday afternoon. Uh, be praying for the kids. Be praying for uh, Pastor Rich is the one who's going to be doing the, the speaking, the messages that week. Um, activities, just all the things that go in the, in the time that they have, their personal time with the Lord and their cabins with one another. Um, and you know what, guys? Probably not a bad idea. We could even just pray that you just have a good time. How about that? And, uh, and that would be great. All through the week, For those of you that are interested, uh, Craig will be giving daily updates on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. If you're here and you're like, what are those? (laughs) Then I would just say, forget it and come back next week and we'll tell you. (laughs) How about that? But uh, before we get into today's message, I I think that it's at a minimum. Let's just take a minute and just pray again. Let's just pray for this youth week and that God would do great things. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we just think about what all you have done in the years past and the lives of so many people at youth camp, and we just praise you for that. And there's a lot of people sitting here. I know Pastor Rich himself was saved at a youth camp, at that very Camp Machindo. And I just know that, Lord, a lot of young people, and not so young anymore, Lord, you have just taken the time when we would just kind of get away from home, get away from our daily routine, and just take the opportunity to slow down and focus on our relationship with you, that you do amazing things. And Lord, that's our prayer for this week. I want to pray for each and every young person who is going to go, that they would have that time of refreshing, that they would have that time for sure, having a blast, playing games, having fun with their friends, swimming, and and all the fun stuff that they can do. But more than anything, Lord, that they would just be able to connect with you, that each and every one would have that quiet time where they can just reflect and consider where they're at in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And if they haven't yet solidified that relationship with you, that this would be the time that they would do that, that once and for all they would surrender their hearts and once and for all they would recognize and and just experience the joy that comes in forgiveness and being clean and just having new life in Jesus Christ. I want to pray for Craig and for Rich and for all the leaders that are going to be helping organize and work this whole week and the music and all the things that will go on, God, that you would just bless, that you would guide, that you would be so apparent in the midst of all of those activities, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified. And God, do great things. We can't wait to hear all the things that you're going to do. We anticipate that and we thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we are studying in the Gospel of John, and so if you have your Bibles, please open up to the Gospel of John, and we are starting chapter number 16. Now, if you were with us last week, we finished chapter number 15, and what we did was we looked at some characteristics. We called them the marks of true discipleship, and, and the last part of John chapter 15, the, the big three things that we saw were that you would love the brethren. That's a characteristic of a true disciple of Jesus Christ, that they will love other Christian brothers and sisters, that they would bear fruit that would remain. And in bearing fruit, we talk about the fruit of personal growth, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. And we also talk about the fruit of reproduction, being able to lead others to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that that fruit would remain. And we typically talk about a thing called discipleship around here. It's just a process that we use to help train younger believers so that their, their, their faith is founded strong on the truth of God's word, and then they won't be quickly shaken and, and run away. And so love the brethren, bear fruit that remains. But the last significant portion of John 15, Jesus warns his disciples about persecution that'll come from the world. 
And it's kind of a bummer, you know, but, it, but it's the truth. And, and so Jesus prepares the way and says, hey, you need to prepare yourself because the world is going to hate you. And, and it hated me first. And by the way, it's not hating you for your sake. It's hating you for my sake. And if you stand for me, you stand against this system of this world. And the Bible calls it a present evil world. Well, when we get into chapter 16, I review that with you quickly because chapter 16 really continues that very thought. And we're going to read the first six verses here together now. And it starts off right away with this phrase, these things, these things. And it says that phrase, these things, four different times in these first six verses. So just follow along John chapter 16. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. So on the heels of chapter 15 and talking about this persecution and difficulty and hatred and opposition that will naturally come from a sin-stained world system that is in his direct opposition to the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus continues this thought kind of giving some balance, kind of giving some perspective. In fact, in contrast to the hostility that the world will show towards believers, we see Jesus Christ and all through the scriptures and maybe nowhere more clearly than in the Gospel of John, how Jesus doesn't have hostility towards the world, but rather Jesus so loved the world, right? He ultimately gave his life so that they could be saved. And what he's doing with the disciples here is he's offering them comfort. He's giving them perspective. He's preparing them for the road that's ahead of them. And so there is some bad news. Obviously, the bad news is, is that this world hates believers. This world persecutes believers. But he says, don't be offended. Uh, these things I've said to you that you would not be offended. And he talks about some bad things. They'll put you out of the synagogues. The time will come that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And so we kind of, our minds go to this idea of jihad or whatever you want to call it, where it's a, they're religious uh, undertones of literal murders that take place in the name of God. It happens, it's happened all throughout history. It continues to happen, sadly, even today. And, and, and Jesus says, if you look in verse number four, it says, these things I've told you um, that the time shall come, you may remember them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. In other words, I'm telling you about these things now because in just a few days they're going to kill me. And until now, I've been the target. But very shortly, I'll be gone. And you'll be the target. <laughs> you'll be the target. And so he's just preparing them, okay? But there is good news, obviously, and we're going to get into that today. In verse number seven, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And so the good news is that it's not always going to be this way. In other words, comfort will come. Jesus Christ himself comforted the disciples throughout their time together. But Jesus is about to leave, and it says, sorrow has filled your heart. But he's like, listen, it's actually going to be better for you for me to physically leave, and you can almost imagine the trauma that these 11 disciples are going through after all these years together with Jesus. It's going to be better for you because the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit of God, will come to you because if I don't leave, he won't come. And that's actually better for you. And he says, look, this is going to be this is going to be the way that you will continue to be comforted. It will be the way that you will remember the things that I've told unto you. This will be the contrast for the, for the life that you have in front of you. And so the title of this message is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, because that's what we're going to see in the verses that follow going down to verse 15 today. But listen, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is often under, misunderstood Excuse me today. There are people today that misunderstand the biblical definition, the understanding of what the Holy Spirit of God was sent to do. And you know, a lot of the reason why people misunderstand it is that just, quite frankly, there's a lot of real bad teaching about it out there. 
There's a whole group of people who typically uh, fall into a category that we referred to as, a, as a, the charismatic movement. The people who will emphasize the ministry of the Holy Spirit outside the bounds of Scripture, well, they will say that there will be some giving of the Holy Spirit at some second blessing, some subsequent time to the moment that you were saved. That somehow you get saved at one point in your life and that sometime later you get what they will call the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which they would say is evidenced by the speaking in tongues, it, uh, unknown tongues, by the way, not just speaking foreign languages. It would be evidenced by these miraculous signs and miracles and wonders that if, if and when that happens to you, that you will automatically be blessed with health physically, wealth materially, that they'll go through the scriptures and they have this name it and claim it mentality. There's a verse, context is of no concern to them. I name it in Jesus' name and I'm going to have it. And they say these things and they emphasize the Holy Spirit will do all these things in you and love me for a second when I say it this way, but normal Christians sometimes see that thing and get frustrated. They get confused. They get freaked out. And they're like, don't want anything to do with that. And, and the knee-jerk reaction is then, if that's what the Holy Spirit folks talk about and that's you know out there, that's not for me. And they ignore it and they swing the pendulum too far and then they don't truly emphasize or understand what the Bible tells us is the true ministry <laughs> of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what we're going to see today. When we look at this, it's not to avoid the subject, but we're going to dive right in because we're going to be looking now in verses 8 down to verse 15, and we are going to see two major, and now the Holy Spirit does more than just what is described here, but in this passage, being true to the text of the Bible, two major focus of what the Holy Spirit does in the world today. Okay, and so you ready? The first thing, is we're going to see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. Follow with me. We're going to read verses 8 through 11. And when he has come, he is the comforter. He is the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, verse 8, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Okay? So the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world, very clearly from the text, is to reprove the world. It is to reprove the world. And a very simple definition of reproof is to blame or to convince of a fault. Okay? To reprove the world, to blame the world, or to convince the world that the world is indeed at fault. And he's going to do that in three distinct, specific ways. And it says sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we're going to walk through that, again, looking at specifically what he says. Before we do all that, let's just stop for a second because you've got to understand the single most significant problem in the world today is not poverty. It's not intolerance. It's not unrest in the Middle East. It's not the economy. It's not any of those things that are serious problems, by the way. The single most significant problem in the world today and every day is sin. <laughs> it's sin, and you've got to understand that. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the human race, it has plagued us. It has absolutely ruined our life. And I want to read for you, we're going to look in Romans chapter 3. And just as a good reminder, Romans chapter 3 and we're going to start in verse number 10 and just get God's perspective about what life on planet Earth is really all about. He says in Romans 3:10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not me, not you, not your saintly grandmother, not your best friend, not the Pope, not the nicest guy you've ever met. There's none righteous, God said, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. In case it wasn't clear the first time. Their throat is an open sepulcher. 
With their tongues they've used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And so you have God's summary of this world situation. It's in a great, big, hairy mess because of sin. And God gave his word. God gave the law. And he gave it so that every mouth would be stopped from making excuses. Every mouth would be closed from justifying themselves before God and that they would all ultimately realize the the truth of their condition and that's that they're guilty. That they would recognize their guilt. That's what the Holy Spirit of God does. Generally speaking, this issue of sin is the problem. That breaks down into three specific ways when he says sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we're going to see those three ways based on the way that he describes them, okay? Because the problem today is is that people... Listen, all our lives we've dealt with sin. We were born in sin. We have practiced sin. And whether we like it or don't like it, we're used to it. We get accustomed to it. We get accustomed to the fact that some level of sin is acceptable, some higher level then crosses the line that's not acceptable. And we become numb to it at some level and we begin to excuse ourselves or one another we begin to justify sinful behavior for ourselves or for one another and then ultimately that all plays into the fact that somehow in our minds if we allow it to continue we don't really think we're all that bad we judge ourselves against one another rather than judging ourselves against the standard of God's word and so here this is by the way that's nothing new all the way back to Adam. Remember Eve, Adam? You know, what happened? What'd you do? The serpent beguiled me. Adam, what'd you do? Well, the woman that you gave me, she gave me. To, everybody's blaming somebody else. Everybody's justifying themselves. We do it today. And so what we have to see is that the Holy Spirit of God is sent into the world, okay, for the last 2,000 years to reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, to blame or convince of a fault. You might just look at it like reprove to prove again, if that helps you. He's going to prove to you these three things, okay? And the first one is sin. Now, in this particular verse, okay, as we're looking at verse number nine of sin because they believe not on me. Listen to this. People go to hell when their physical life is over only based on one sin, There is only one, you need to know this, there is only one sin in existence that sends a man to hell. It's not murder, it's not rape, it's not blasphemy, it's not idolatry, it's not lying, it's not cheating, it's not stealing, it's not any of those kind of things. We are all sinners, we all commit multiple sins. But it is not what people do that sends them to hell. It's what they don't do. It's not what you do that sends you to hell. It's what you don't do. We would sometimes call that uh, the things that you do that are bad a sin of commission. You committed that sin. But the thing that sends you to hell is a sin of omission. Not doing something that you're supposed to do. And that's what verse number 9 says. Because they believed not on me. The only damning sin in eternity is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ's final payment for your sin. If you reject that, that is the one and only sin that sends you into a Christless eternity. There is no other. Anybody who does not believe on Jesus Christ's blood atonement for their sin will go to hell. Listen, men all over the planet, mankind, in other words, 
regularly confess their faults and their sins. We all are willing to say how we did this or we did that, and we'll say, yes, I understand, yes, I did this. Uh, The prisons are full of people who have been caught and eventually say, okay, okay, I did it. We all are guilty of confessing things that we did, but rare is the guy who will understand and confess, oh, I haven't believed, and that's what I must do. Now, if you have believed, okay, then you have crossed that bridge, okay? But that's what it is. That's what he needs us to do. We need to acknowledge our sin of rejecting the Savior. You might consider it this way. People don't die because they're sick. People die because they reject the cure. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine somebody that you love who has a terminal illness and there exists a known, proven cure for that terminal illness? And the individual says, no thanks, I'll try it my own way. That's ridiculous. It would drive you crazy thinking, but why would you even consider trying another way? There is a proven way. This way works. Just do this and you will be healed. And they say, no thanks. But that's what people do every day when they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the cure for our disease of sin. And he's the only cure. And yet people go off in their own ways and they decide, well, if I just live a good enough life or you call him Jesus, but I call him Buddha or whatever you want to consider and you, they just make their own way and they say, I think that'll be fine. It just never ceases to amaze me how people can understand who Jesus is and what he did and say no thank you. I've, I've just never understood that. I mean, you think about it. If you ultimately acknowledge your sin of not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and you repent and turn from that, in other words, you eventually then confess, yes, that is my sin, Lord. I have not believed on you, but today I will do that. Today I will surrender my life to you. Today I want to ask you to forgive me my sins, come into my heart and my life and give me the gift of eternal life. If you do that one thing, What else, what other sin could you possibly commit that would keep you out of heaven? There is none. Because even if, God forbid, you were a vile, dirty, murdering, rapist, extortioner, whatever, make your own list. You receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, and it's all wiped clean. Every bit of it's wiped clean. Don't you understand that? It's not those things, per se, that keep you out of heaven. The thing that keeps you out of heaven is not believing on him. There's only one sin, and the job of the Holy Spirit, getting back to our subject, the job, among the things that we'll see, of the Holy Spirit in this world, it's his job in the world. We're talking among non-believing people, of which we all were at one time is to convict or to reprove the world of this sin that they don't believe on him. That they don't believe on him. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's his job. And if you're here today and you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ in some point in your life, and I know many, if not most, all of you have, it's because one day in your past, the Holy Spirit showed up and knocked on your heart and convinced you of this fault that you needed to repent and you needed to put your total trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death for you. That's his job. He reproves the world of sin because they believe not on him. He reproves the world also of righteousness. Now, it's similar to the issue of sin. These are similar situations but let's look at exactly what it says similar to reproving the world of sin the holy spirit reproves the world of righteousness or could we say it's lack thereof Uh, in first john chapter 5 and verse 17 the bible defines for us it says all unrighteousness is sin 
So anything that is not righteous, anything that is not right is sin. Well, okay, isn't that the same thing? Well, no, it's not exactly the same thing because here we're seeing a different aspect of it. Here we're going to see that the basis for this reproof of righteousness is Jesus' sinless life. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. Because he goes on in verse number 10 and he says, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So he's, Jesus is looking forward to the time shortly he will die on the cross of Calvary. He will be buried. He will raise again the third day and he will ascend to be with his Father. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come in my place and will reprove the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So what does that mean? That means that the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that he alone meets the perfect requirements for a sinless standard. It's the fact that Jesus Christ did everything that he said. It's the fact that Jesus Christ stands as the example of one who lived his life to adulthood having never one time sinned and yet took our sin upon him, died, was buried, and rose again. That's the gospel. That he rose again from the grave and he ascended at the right hand of the Father today. That is a reproof that the Holy Spirit uses for a sinful world, an unrighteous world today. Jesus' life stands as the fulfillment of the standard so that we cannot look around and say, well, hey, nobody can do it. We're all okay. That rolls into our poor judgment. That will be the next one we'll get to in a second. Paul is in Athens, and he's dealing with the people there who are not believers in Acts chapter 17. And in verse number 30, he calls every man everywhere to repent. And in verse 31, he says, Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. So again, you see that the literal bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the element. It is the basis by which God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, reproves this world and ultimately judges this world for righteousness. Because Jesus was, and we're not. (laughs) Jesus was, is, and we're not. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 4, and this is all through the Scripture, but Romans 1-4 says, And declared, speaking of Jesus Christ, of course, and declared to be the Son of God with power, how? According to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So there's something special about this resurrection. There's something special about the fact that he died for our sins, having none of his own, rose again and ascended to the Father. You could go to his tomb today and it's empty. You go to the graves of any other world religious leader, figurehead, any of those things, and you will find that their bones are still there. Jesus rose bodily, literally, and ascended. He's no longer there. There is no competition for this place. There is nobody else who can claim what Jesus can claim. There is nobody else that has done what Jesus has done. And and, and I want to draw your attention to Psalm chapter 115. Take a second and look there with me. Psalms chapter 115, we're going to read a few verses. Talking a little bit more about idolatry, but, but the whole principle applies. Psalms chapter 115, verse number one. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. Verse number eight. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. They that make them are like unto them. These these carven, graven 
idols, these, these focuses of worship that men would bow down to these statues and these graven images that look like the figure of a man that have the eyes, ears, nose, mouth, throat, hands, but they're not alive. They have no real life in them. It's just a chunk of wood or a, or a piece of silver or gold or bronze or metal. And he says, they that make them, they that trust in them, are just like them. In other words, there's no life in them. There's no life in the idol. There's no life in those that trust in them. And if you're not putting your faith, again, going back to the convicting of sin, if you believe not in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no life in you, no eternal life in you. And, And this is all confirmed through the fact that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Now just think about it for a second. He reproves the world of righteousness. Have you noticed, like I have, that the unrighteous world, the, the non-saved, the, 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 and everybody's, everybody's come short of the glory of God, the, the unsaved, non-believing world of people that live all around us, they don't particularly like to just hang around the righteous. Have you noticed that? Maybe in, in, the, in the last year, you've just gotten saved. Maybe in just, just shortly ago, you just got saved. And you just received Christ, and man, he's come into you, and he's changed your life, gloriously cleaned you up, and your old bad habits are gone, and all things are become new, and you are changed, and there's a spring in your step, and a joy in your heart, and you talk about the things of the Lord, and you've got a new outlook on life, and God has changed you, and all of a sudden, here's what will happen to believers. It happened to me, it probably happened to most all of you, if that's of you. Your old friends kind of get tired of that your old friends kind of don't want to hear about jesus anymore your old friends kind of not interested anymore in just you going on and on and on about things that are right and refusing to do things that are wrong that maybe you used to do together with them and you don't do that anymore so the unrighteous kind of don't like hanging with you no more And so there's a natural separation for people who get saved and they see this change. As a result of that, what happens is is that your old friends or this worldly crowd, in order to ease their own conscience, because you may or may not be preaching Christ to them, you may just be living an example in front of them. In order to ease their own conscience, what do they do? Ultimately, they're going to start to try and accuse you and ultimately lead up to what Jesus talked about in John 15, and that's persecute you. Because if I persecute you and bring you down, somehow that makes me feel better about me. (laughs) Because what's going on is, is that I have, I used to run with these guys and I used to do this stuff with those guys and I, for myself, have chose to change. I gave my heart and life to Jesus. I won't participate in those activities anymore. But my friends, my old friends, they still participate in those activities. I don't necessarily point my finger up their nose. I don't necessarily get in their face and tell them. I just quit doing it. But they're smart. And they conclude, hey, wait a minute. You won't do that with us anymore. You obviously made a change because you think your new way is better, which then they extrapolate. You obviously, therefore, think our way is worse. You're judging me. And they fight back with persecution. That's how it works. That's how it works. The righteous of this world, however, are very different. Do we do that to them? No. What do we do? We try and love them like Jesus did. We carry the gospel to them. We, we try and help them make the choice that we made because not that long ago we were in the same boat they were in, right? That's what Jesus did, and that's what we're supposed to do. We, we love them with the hope of bringing them the gospel so that they can walk with the Lord too. But eventually, let's be honest, and I'm using the terms you know, from the Scripture, righteous, unrighteous, not that we're perfect. But ultimately, really, isn't it true that we who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ and maybe have forsaken some of the old sinful ways it's probably not our favorite thing in the world to just hang around with the sinful world every day, day in and day out either, is it? 
I mean, they're readily willing to forsake us. We're kind of willing to forsake them too, aren't we? And so, in a sense, when you look at this, here, I'm, I'm getting to something. I mean, you know, God said back in the book of Amos, can two walk together except they be agreed? Ultimately, we try and reach this world. We try to reach out to them in love. But we can't just constantly and forever hang around unrighteousness. It'll mess you up. So there's a withdrawing that takes place, and isn't that exactly what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit is going to come replace Jesus and to reprove the world of righteousness because Jesus himself said, enough, I'm out of here. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the Father. And he withdraws. And the fact that he was perfect, the fact that he did all those things and lived righteously and then withdraws is a rebuke. It's a reproof. And the Holy Spirit of God, the invisible hand of God working in this world system today is working in these areas to reprove this world of its lack of righteousness. That's his job. And so that's why Jesus Christ is the only one who possibly can be, as the Bible calls, the only mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 2. So he reproves the world of sin, he reproves the world of righteousness, he reproves the world of judgment. And verse number 11 says, because the prince of this world, that's the devil, by the way, is judged. Is judged. It's over. The the judgment on the devil has been completed, it has been pronounced. The ultimate judgment of the devil, by the way, was completed at Calvary. That's when it takes place. Jesus hangs on the cross, and maybe you'll remember one of the seven different statements that he made while he was nailed to that cross when he finally said, it's finished. And we refer to how the payment for sin is finished, his suffering is finished, his life is finished, his battle with the devil is finished because he has declared victorious. There's a really cool prophecy that comes out of Isaiah chapter 50, and I gave you that reference there. Let's just read a few verses from Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 through 9. Talking, it's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. Notice, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. This is Jesus on the cross. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Notice, who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. And so this spiritual battle that's going on in the spirit world while Jesus Christ is on the cross and they have beaten him and they've plucked his beard and they spit on him and they mock him and they do all the things that he's doing and he's literally on the cross of Calvary and what's going on between the Christ and the devil is this call to battle and he says, yes, the Father will take care of me. He will avenge me. He will, take, he will finish this work. Who is mine adversary? adversary? Where is he? Let him come and let's have this thing out. I will set my face like a flint. And Jesus Christ calls the devil out. And when he dies and he pays for our sin and ultimately is resurrected with the keys of death and hell, he's raised victorious and it is finished. The judgment has been pronounced and the prince of this world is judged. Because of all that stuff, what happens at that time then is that there is a dominion. And in Matthew chapter 4, you might remember as the devil shows up as a serpent to tempt Jesus Christ in the wilderness after his 40 days of fasting and among the different ways that he tempts him in verses 8 and 9, he goes up to a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he's like, all of this is mine. And I'll give it all to you, Jesus, if you'll just bow down and worship me. And and notice that Jesus never says to him, it ain't yours. 
because for a temporary time it was. But after Calvary, the dominion shifts back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, although he's not physically present on earth right now, and we know he's going to come back again, Jesus is living out his existence right now similar to a story that maybe you've recently read. If you've been reading through the Bible with us regularly, you've just finished the life of David and we're into the life of Solomon. And in and, and, and David's time at the beginning when Saul was still king, David as a young man was already anointed the king, but he was yet to be put on the throne. And for a time, he was in exile and he was running. He was being persecuted by Saul and his men. But, but David was the king. He just hadn't taken his rightful place in Jerusalem yet. But he will. He will take that place. And ultimately, as the story goes on, of course, David gets his throne in Jerusalem. That's what Jesus is doing now. He has already received the dominion as a result of what he did in Calvary. And like King David, is kind of in exile for a while, but he will return to Jerusalem and he will take up his throne again. And the Holy Spirit of God reproves this world of judgment because the prince of this world is already judged. He's already judged. Do you you realize how wrongly this world judges things? Do you ever think about how crazy this world judges things? I mean, they're whacked. The world system typically judges everything based on immediate gratification. The world system does not judge things based on, here's the key word, eternal consequence. And that's what true judgment is all about. It's about eternal consequence, not just immediate consequence, not just what helps me today through this little crisis I'm in, see? And this world needs to be reproved of this error People judge based on circumstance rather than substance. And until they take into into consideration the eternal consequences of their actions, they're cruising along thinking they're okay. And the Holy Spirit of God is sent to do a job in this sinful world, in the life and heart of every single man, woman, boy, and girl to reprove, convince them of their fault in the areas of sin and righteousness and judgment. And if the people of this world, of whom we all have been, if we are not continuing, had to understand if we're ever going to turn from that and receive the free gift of eternal life. That's what he does. By the way, let me just say this. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do those things. Not yours. Not yours. Not mine. If it's, listen, when we step out, not that some of us haven't volunteered a time or two, when we step out and say, I got this one. Let me reprove that guy of sin. You know, it doesn't work anyway. It just don't work. The Holy Spirit, can I say, is fully capable of doing his own job just fine. That doesn't mean you check out. It just means let him do what he does. Let him do it. Let's pray that he will do what he does, okay? All right, so that's what he does in the world. The next one, what does he do in the church? Because the passage goes on and tells us what he does in the church. Start in verse number 12. That's cool. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world of unregenerate man is to reprove them, okay, to convince them that they're wrong, that they're sinful, they're unrighteousness, Uh, They're unrighteous, they're Christ rejectors, they're poor judges. But his ministry in the church is quite different. His ministry in the church is to guide the church. Reprove the world, guide the church. And specifically, verse 13, he will guide you into all 
truth. Okay? So if you go back to chapter 15, even if the truth that he's guiding us into is unpleasant, it's still for our good. It's still there to help us. And so when we saw in the first seven verses how Jesus is giving balance to that whole perspective of what would be considered bad news, he still guides us into all truth. But you need to understand that ultimately this idea of truth, it's a reference to the Scripture. If you flip the page and look at John chapter 17 and verse number 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, the body of believers who have surrendered their hearts and life to him, his job is to guide you into all truth. And truth is defined as the Bible. So the Holy Spirit of God is given to guide you through the scriptures. That's what, it, that's what his job is. And so I gave you some of the roles of the Holy Spirit in relation to the Scriptures. First off, he's the author of Scripture. Second Peter chapter 1, and verse 21 says, The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He's the author of Scripture. He's also the preserver of Scripture. There's a great principle that comes from Psalms chapter 12 that talks about the words of the Lord are pure words. And it goes on and it says that thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And so the them is referring to what? The words of the Lord. God promises to inspire and give us his word, but he then also promises to preserve that word. And it is the Holy Spirit of God that not only does the inspiring, the authoring of the word, but it's the Holy Spirit of God that preserves the word as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And a lot of people memorize verse number 16, but we're going to get a run and start with verse 15. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, Paul writing to Timothy, and that from a child thou, Timothy, hast known the holy scriptures, that's important, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 16 that many of us already could quote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for all these things. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Let's break down that word for a second. Some of the newer versions of the Bible would say is God breathed. That's not wrong, okay? Because the inspiration inspire the the the, the spiration let's let's just say um you know it's it's like the same exact word as as wind or breath or air right aspiration okay the 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 s-p-i-r part spirit it's the exact same word it's the exact same meaning All Scripture is given by the Spirit of God, by the inspiration, God literally breathing it into existence by means of His Holy Spirit. That's exactly what He's talking about. And you say, well, okay, in the original manuscripts, when God first inspired man to do that, He did that. Well, wait a minute, we're talking about preservation. Because He sets the context. All Scripture is given by inspiration, verse 15. That's why I gave you verse 15. Verse 15, Timothy, by the way, don't forget that you have known the Holy Scriptures. Does anybody really think that Timothy had the original copies of everything Moses ever wrote? Really? There's no way that that could ever refer to the original documents that were inspired as the Holy Spirit moved men to write them down. No, if you have a God-preserved copy, you have Holy Scripture, and it is the Holy Spirit of God's job to author it. It's the Holy Spirit of God's job to preserve it and to back down off of that at any level is tantamount to accusing the Holy Spirit of not doing his job. He's the only interpreter of Scripture. Second Peter chapter 1, I read verse 21. Here's verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Again, verse 21 goes on and talks about how the Holy Spirit moves men. So we are not given the freedom to just interpret the Scripture however we want. People do that, but not, the Holy Spirit's not leading you to do that. 
The Holy Spirit is the one who interprets the Scripture by taking the Scripture, comparing it with it. This book is the greatest book ever written because it is self-defining. You don't understand what something means. You compare it with other places where it's written, and it defines itself. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's the teacher. You go back to chapter 14. We studied this a few weeks ago. And verse 26, John 14, 26, the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. So there's good news. While the Holy Spirit in this world of unregenerate man is in the process of convincing the world of its sinfulness, its unrighteousness, its poor judgment, at the same time is guiding us to understand all truth which includes the proper application of it in our lives as we live it out in this present evil world. So he's going to guide us into all truth. I don't know about you. That's a little convicting. He said all truth. I'm curious. I don't, I don't want anybody to be embarrassed. But, but if you are here and you might say, I think I got it. I think I got it all. I think I don't need to learn anything else. I think I know everything there is to know. I would like to meet you. If you are here, please just, just raise your hand, shout your name, because I don't have it all. We don't have it all. But it says, so what's up with that? He says he'll guide you into all truth and we're sitting here saying we don't got it all does that bother it bothers me when i read stuff like that well let's look at verse 12 i kind of skipped over verse 12 for a second because i want to hit it now verse 12 by the way verse 12 is awesome you got to get verse 12 i mean if you highlight stuff in your bible highlight verse 12 it's going to help you i have yet many things to say unto you jesus said to his disciples but you cannot bear them now. You know what? That's a great verse. Wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord, there's always more out there. That's kind of cool. And God is not necessarily giving you everything today because you don't need everything today. He's just going to give you what you need. And he's going to give it to you at the time that you need it. So there's some things that these 11 disciples did not understand at the time of this event. Things that you and I understand already, okay? I made a list. Just listen. Some of you will will track right with this. Some of you maybe not. But just, just listen to this list of things that these 11 disciples that walked with Jesus would not have understood that you and I can understand today. They did not fully understand the vicarious blood atonement for sin until after it was done. Uh, They didn't understand the bodily resurrection after three days. He talked about it, but the Bible says later, it's very clear, they really didn't get it till afterwards, and they said, oh, that's what he was talking about. They didn't understand the miraculous nature of the apostolic ministry in the first century. They didn't understand that Israel officially rejects the Lord Jesus Christ and will be set aside, but ultimately to be reestablished after 1,900 years. They wouldn't have understood that. We can understand that. They would not have understood the Jewish nature, I mean, the Jew Gentile body together in the church, excuse me, the Gentile nature of the body of Christ. For them, it was all Jewish. They would not have understood how Israel rejected and then was kind of put on the shelf and the gospel goes directly to the Gentiles and the primary makeup of the body of Christ is Gentile. They would not have understood how together they would be one body in Christ. We understand that. They would not have understood, although Christ is beginning to reveal it to them now, this idea of Christ in you, eternal security, that the Holy Spirit of God would be the earnest He would be the down payment. He would be the guarantee that we have eternal life secure. They didn't understand that he would seal us unto the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit of God lived in man throughout the Old Testament, yes, but he could come and he could go. He could come and he could go, but not for you. Not if you're saved. He's in you to stay. 
They didn't understand that. They would have never understood the rapture of the church. Never would have understood what that was all about. They would not have understood the glorified bodies that we will get at the rapture of the church. Isn't that great? They didn't understand the revelation of the Antichrist. The Bible calls it the mystery of iniquity. They didn't understand that. They wouldn't have understood something the Bible calls Babylon the Great, mystery religion, that the Antichrist would have a religious system that he would use as a vehicle to deceive masses of people into thinking that he is indeed the Christ. They, they wouldn't have understood that that went all the way back to ancient Babel. They would not have understood that. They would have understood that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on earth because they talked about that before his ministry's over. But they wouldn't have understood that he's going to postpone it a couple thousand years and set it up on earth for only a thousand years. And that ultimately it rolls into a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. They wouldn't have understood that. I mean, these are just 12 things that I made a quick list thinking about Things that we can know that they didn't know because they didn't need to know them back then. It would come. How can we know them and they didn't know them? Because he sent us the comforter, the spirit of truth. Because the spirit of truth that is the author, preserver, the teacher of scripture lives inside of us. He takes us through the scripture. He shows us. He continued to inspire men to continue the revelation to the church in that next generation after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what he does for us. So the practical application of verse number 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now, is just be patient. Just be patient. God gives out information on a need-to-know basis. I mean, that makes sense, right? He gives it out on a need-to-know basis. How many times, think about it, how many times, if you've been saved any length of time and gone through the Scripture, you're reading something and you've read it. I mean, y'all have been through the Gospel of John a bunch of times. But if you read through something, all of a sudden, this might be your 25th time you're reading through, and the lights just go on and God just shows you something, and you're like, whoa, has that been there the whole time? How did I never get that? That's what he's doing. The Holy Spirit says, well, you didn't really need it back then. Now you need it. So while you're reading along, I'm just going to click the lights on right when you get to the spot you need to get to, and whammo, there you go. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Which, by the way, is a great advertisement about why y'all really need to be consistently and faithfully just reading through the Bible all the time as a way of life. If you are not consistently, faithfully, daily spending some time in the Bible, I don't care where you are. I don't care if you're in John. I don't care if you're in Colossians. I don't care if you're in Leviticus. Just, just go through it. Just go through it. Just go through it. The Holy Spirit of God will turn the lights on at the right place and at the right time. The only way that doesn't work is if you just keep the book shut. You ain't listening. Because he's going to guide you into all truth and thy word is truth, right? So that's what the Holy Spirit does in the church. It's pretty cool. Look at the big picture. The Holy Spirit of God works behind the scenes in all of life, notice, to bring the world down from its pedestal of pride and to lift the church up to its full potential in Christ. Yeah, you know, the world's kind of got an upper hand in the sense that it can hate you, it can persecute you, it can pull some strings and make your life pretty miserable if you stand for the Lord. That's fine. But it ain't forever. He is actively working in them. He is actively working in you. And there will come a day, it'll all line out just exactly the way it's supposed to line out. Just do your part. Just do your part. That's what he does. So if you're here today and you would say, that God forbid if your physical life ended before this day ended, you are not 100% sure that you would have your home in heaven. Can I tell you that what the Holy Spirit of God has been doing in your heart for this last hour is to remind you of your sin, of your unrighteousness, and of eternal judgment. Lovingly drawing you 
to ultimately just turn from that, surrender that, and give your heart and life once and for all to the lordship of the only one who could possibly rescue you from the flames of hell. If that's you today, my question for you is, will you do that? Will you just respond to him today? Most of you would say, I've already done that. Let me ask you this. In relation to the church, the body of believers that we understand that we are, the job of the Holy Spirit is to guide you into all truth. Ask yourself this question. Am I constantly and regularly growing in my relationship with the Lord by constantly and regularly growing in my relationship with the Scriptures being taught to me, applying them in my life? Am I in a system of, again, we call it discipleship, the student, the teacher, whatever it might be, to continually be in God's Word, Him teaching me, me sharing it with other people? Am I doing that? Am I growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I care? Does it interest me? If you're here and you would say, you know what, I I know I'm saved, but man, I have not really been faithful in his word. I've not been studying it. I really haven't learned anything in a long time because I haven't done my part. I haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to talk to me. I haven't been faithful in church. I haven't been faithful reading. I haven't been involved in discipleship. Whatever it might be for you, would you just today decide, I'm going to do it. Today's the day. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to decide. No more of that. We're going to start opening up the door to allow the Holy Spirit to work in me. Would you do that? Let's pray together.